My name's Hugh Atchison, and this is Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot. On today's show, we visit a absolutely stunning labyrinth, a beautiful building in Chinatown that used to be an old Chinese opera house. Now it's a restaurant called Chinese Tuxedo. When it opened in 2016, the irascible Pete Wells of the New York Times dining critic fame called the place, quote, smart fusion. Thought the term fusion had gone, you know, the way of the dodo. But here it is, 2019, and we still are using a term that was really popularized in the 1990s for wasabi mashed potatoes. This restaurant, though, at its core, is really about global food. It's focused around Cantonese dishes, but then with influences of Australia and France, Szechuan food, Vietnamese food, Thai food. And the food's really, really good. And the space is, uh, it's crazy. It's like the, uh, the underworld den of Chinatown. It's, it's like it was ripped right out of a movie. But today I sit down with Chinese Tuxedo's Australian co-owner Eddie Buckingham and Scottish chef Paul Donnelly. And they bonded over Asian cuisine in Australia way back when, when they worked together before. And they tell an incredible story about this global cuisine. So let's get down to it. If you're enjoying Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot, please give the show a five-star rating. Because I'm worth it, I think. I don't know. We don't know. But go ahead. Write a review. On Apple Podcasts, someplace like that. That'll help other people find the show. And if you're a first-time listener, please subscribe and download other episodes like Carla Hall Finds Soul Food and last week's episode, Andrew Friedman Eats at Gotham. Here's this week's conversation. Chinese Tuxedo Travels the World. Well, I am a Chinese Tuxedo. It's a restaurant in Chinatown in New York City in Manhattan. Uh, Chinatown uh, really is Chinatown now, but it also hubs up to Little Italy, which is not really Little Italy anymore. But uh, I'm sitting here with Eddie Buckingham, who's the co-owner and operating partner of Chinese Tuxedo, and with Paul Donnelly, uh, who is the executive chef of Chinese Tuxedo. Um, Glad you guys are here. Thank you, mate. Welcome Thank to so welcome much. to Chinatown. Uh, yeah, welcome to uh, Chinese Tuxedo, Chinatown. Uh, it's uh, it is an elaborate space to say the least. I mean, it's what three levels, um, two levels. Right now, we're in the uh, what's called Peaches, which is the the bar downstairs. Um, elaborate bar, busy, beautiful floral canopies of drapery and great wallpaper. But what 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 is the layout yeah, of the so, building? What's so the history? Where we are right now, we're in the true basement of the building. It's kind of adjunct to Tuxedo, and as you mentioned, uh, Peaches. It's our cocktail bar, kind of the little sister to Tuxedo proper. But it is a very unusual building, an unusual space. Um, the reason being, it was the original Chinatown Opera House, the first Chinese language theatre here on the east coast of the USA. Um, when we discovered it, so we opened the restaurant two years ago in November 2016, but we discovered it in late 2014, and it was a long road to kind of bring it to life, the space as we know it today. So uh, when we first looked at it, um, it, it was a small mall, a bunch of different Chinatown business suites, but the owner of this property advised us that it had originally been that opera house. So we couldn't see any of the historic elements, but we were pretty confident they were hidden there 
behind drop ceilings and false walls and false floors and the like. So after securing the lease, we basically did a demo and tore the place to pieces to try and return it to that original scale. What was the craziest thing you found, Eddie? Uh, probably the most exciting stuff, the most dramatic stuff the were just the, the, yeah, <laughs> the original elements. Um, so sitting right behind us, as mentioned, we're in the true basement now. You'll see the cinder block wall is kind of out of step with all the other materials. That being because there was a, a, a network of tunnels that ran under Chinatown from the late 19th century right through to about the 1980s, some of the tunnels were open. And the notorious uh, gangs of Chinatown, in this case the Hop Sing Tong, used it for kind of trafficking contraband, uh, uh, unbeknownst to the NYPD under the streets of Chinatown. So The so story of uh, Chinatown. You, you can't fake that kind of drama and history. That's <laughs> I'm glad great. for it. It's so funny that we're here in Chinatown uh, in the States and none of us are Chinese <laughs> or American. Probably uh, got some running through our bloods, just a little bit, yeah. you know. Chef Paul, you are from Glasgow. Yes, uh, born and raised in Scotland. Um, ate a lot of Chinese food when I was in Scotland. Uh, it but, is uh, it's really known sure as the epicenter of Hunan and Sichuan. Food. Yes, it for sure. Glasgow, you know, not really. I think it's not. It's, it's kind of a not reached that level yet. I, I hear from some from <laughs> some chef friends who are back there now that you know Asian cuisine starting starting to kind of take off a little bit, get a little bit more elevated. I haven't lived in Scotland since two thousand and six, so I remember I was extremely young then. I was eating sweet and sour pork over. French fries. Yeah. You know, that was kind of like... Which is not on the, the menu at Tuxedo, was, I want to stress. That was where... That was, that was kind of like the Chinese food that's in Scotland. That's Chinese Scottish you know? poutine. Yeah, exactly. That's actually a good idea. Yeah. We should put a Chinese... No, don't. No, 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 that's a bad idea. That's a really bad idea. We're just riffing. No ideas. Uh, so, Eddie, Ed, you're from Melbourne. Yes. In Australia. So, my hometown is Melbourne, Australia, which had a very different kind of East Asian food culture and cuisine culture. Um, so, growing up, in the 80s and 90s in Australia, uh, uh, it was a really important time for the development of Chinese cuisine in Australia, where it went from being, you know, a cheap and cheerful takeout option and really an acutely immigrant food to to the forefront of of Australian contemporary cuisine. It really is so heavily inflected. Uh, Australian food, as we know it now, is so inflected with Asian flavors and uh, and but but more truthful Asian flavors. You know, we went through the fateful days of fusion food, um, where you know American interpretation of fusion food was like wasabi mashed potatoes and silly things like that. Too, I think but it seems like Australia always fully understood what they were getting. Yeah, into. I think the proximity of you know having Asia so close to Australia definitely helps. Also, like the climate and you know, it definitely assists with produce quality. Right. Um, culture, people just kind of are starting to, like, really get into the culture of, you know, Asia, especially, like, the food. Um, a lot of young chefs are coming up now instead of being really interested in, like, I want to cook French food, I want to do this, I want to turn potatoes. They're really starting to, like, you know, take the notion to get into, like, Asian cuisine. But when you guys were working together in Melbourne... In Sydney. In Sydney. In Sydney. Yeah, yeah. okay. In 2008. And what type of restaurant was that? There was a Japanese restaurant, actually, a tepan restaurant, teppanyaki style. Um, A little bit different from your kind of a typical teppanyaki restaurant. You know, there there wasn't just one chef wearing this big tall hat, you know, being extremely elegant with his knife and his fork on the grill. It was a lot more casual, but the food was, I'd say, more elevated. Yeah, it was exceptional quality. Um, And the chef there at the time who 
you guys might know, his name is Sean Presland. Okay. Sean Presland was one of Nobu's kind of apprentices and really came through the ranks with him there. So Sean was, Sean Presland was a chef who was based in Sydney, who was working for ANA, uh, the airline company, doing all this amazing stuff. He got poached from Sydney um, to go to Nobu in the Bahamas. So he travelled over to Nobu in the Bahamas. He stayed there for four years. He took his whole team with him, poached his whole team from Sydney. They all went there together. And then four years later, the guy who he left then poached him to come back. So he kind of brought this new wave of Japanese food to Australia that hadn't really been seen yet. Um, doing all these kind of really cool different kinds of sushi, um, tepan style food. So I kind of got engulfed in that a little bit. Um, and then that's when I kind of got into the Asian food that kind of I took from there. Then I started doing some Thai and I started doing some Chinese and Vietnamese and Cambodian. Chi- and Chinese food and what you're doing here. Yeah. So it's such a, it, it, I mean, it's such a big repertoire of possibility. Yeah. And learning it, like go, uh, recount to me how you, how you embark on something that's so vast. How do you pinpoint learning certain dishes i mean is it books is it cooking is it watching is it eating i think you can i think you can pair it with a lot of things when i say compare i mean you can pair it with a lot of things um i was really fortunate enough to work with in my eyes some of the best chefs in the world i worked with um one of my good friends jow at you who's the executive chef of holy Fook in hong kong mm-hmm. i worked with him for about six years um another guy uh dan hong who's the executive chef of miss g's and mr wong in sydney or who's kind of a now really shot the ladder in Australia. Um, that with, you know, like studying, research and development, travelling the world, um, I think that's a good insight on how to take a cuisine, like we were touched on it before we started recording, and kind of a, manipulate it a little bit right. into what you really foresee it, you want it to be, kind of a, like pushing the boundaries, pushing the envelope on produce and stuff. Um, that was, you know, the key for me in terms of my education and development, learning uh, Asian cuisine, yeah. And, and I'll speak further to that a little bit. With, with our offering here, we, we don't want to put too many limits on ourselves, too mm-hmm. many restrictions. Uh, I think sometimes the American diner has a pretty narrow view of Chinese food and what it, what it entails, or even more broadly, East Asian food. They have very set ideas about the kind of dishes, the kind of dressings, the kind of key proteins that you're utilising. But, but Chinese food is such a misnomer as a term. It's so broad. You're talking about thousands of years of heritage, a billion people, the geographic space, you know, the equivalent to a continent. It would be like, it would be absurd if somebody said, I'm opening a European restaurant in New York City. But that's kind of the equivalency. And so we had a couple of options. We could get very regional, very specific, uh, super traditional, but that wouldn't be in step and true to our own story and development you know, eating throughout Southeast Asia, throughout Australia, drawing from a broad range of regions, having a broad uh, uh, taste profile, different things that we like. And also, what are we solving for? You know, here in Chinatown, Manhattan, we're trying to offer people a broader perception of what Chinese can be. So if we put a lot of limitations of ourselves or try to make it narrow, that wouldn't be in step with what we're looking for. We're also looking for, you know, a new kind of consumer, this, you know, the New York diner. There's been this explosion in the foodie movement, for want of a better term. We're trying to show them some of the things that Chinese cuisine can be removed from, you know, their perception of 
Sunday night takeout chicken chow mein kind of lines. So we, we wanted to give ourselves a broad scope yeah. and then pick the things we think we can do well. There are some things we don't mess with because we think you can get a better example in the neighbourhood or maybe you know we can't do as exceptionally, but find the things we think we can do well and that we think that New York diners will be excited by. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, it, right around the, the streets, this little undulating connection street, um, which is Doyer's, um, in Namwa Tea Parlors right there. Yeah, so door. you're really in the thick of it. Yeah, um, there's a few, even like the noodle places next door are excellent. You know, like people queue up there to get in just as much into those places as they do here, and Namwa's queued out every week, you know? Yeah. Um, I think Joe's just, Shanghai around the corner yeah. for Shanghainese soup dumplings. It's an icon. And I, yeah. think, I think it's a good situation to be in. It's a good part, you know, a part of a team of these restaurants. It's good to be in that because... There's a different offering in each place, you know, and respectively you can get different things in each place, whether it be, you know, extremely elevated or people just wanting to go on a Sunday lunch and have yum cha. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so that's great. That's we're fortunate to kind of be in that that bubble. I, think. I love the use of the Chinese vegetables throughout the menu, and uh, but one of the things when I ate here last year that was just sensationally good was stir fried iceberg lettuce. And I, iceberg lettuce in the United States is known as like the ubiquitous pissed on vegetable. No, I mean, yeah, it's just yeah, like given no respect. Yeah. It's like the McDonald's lettuce of all time. Yeah. Yet to me, it it is awesome in that one way yeah. which is cooked and rarely do we americans don't perceive lettuce as being a cooking green yeah it's true but in this case it was so good and so vibrant so so almost crunchy still and because of its uh the amazing amount of retention of water in it it's almost like crisp on the outside and then tender on the tender. inside and then uh you've got to play with garlic and soy paste and really simple but it was like so good and one of the beautiful things about ice cream it's dear cheap, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Really good. We try to uh, respect the margin we, on we, it. We try to put water on every table. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's... Lettuce, guys. Was a, yeah. Iceberg lettuce. Yeah, but, well, but we, but when we sell it, we sell it with confidence because we do think yeah. it is a beautiful dish, and and it takes a lot of guests by surprise. Some people, often people of say a Chinese background or who've worked in food, will recognise it for what it is. But it, but it takes people by surprise. That's yeah, what I think like proud of. the simplicity of it as well. Sometimes if you're having a complex meal and you just want to have something nutritious and simple, and that's you know it's one of the reasons why it's on the menu, um, and it's it's fantastic. Yeah, nice and crisp as you said. In my cooking, I've got cruxes. I've got things that I always rely on. It's like really good olive oil and house-made vinegars and certain type of salts. What would you say reappears within the cooking that you're doing, Paul, every day? What's, what are the things you're grabbing that really have a, are a foundational flavors throughout the menu? I think for me personally, it would probably be the selection of vinegars and soys. I think they add the layers of flavor and balance that they can really add to the dish. It, it's night and day, you know? So, for example, like with let's touch on the lettuce again. You know, I don't use a straight soy sauce in there, just because going back to yes, the lettuce contains a lot of water. But me adding a liquidy into that again, it's just it's just going to be a soup. Yep. So we opt to use a soy paste. It's a thicker starch soy sauce, um, very soft on the palate in terms of its salt content. Um, to touch on vinegar, uh, the Changon uh, black vinegar is my favourite. Adds another layer, a lot of acid. Um, this might sound strange to say, but in terms of its flavour, I find it quite, I find it quite like beefy. 
Mm-hmm. It has like a, a beefy element to it. It's got a it. new mommy like that, sort of beefiness. Yes. Like boo, uh, it's got a bouillon it's, type it of It almost has it. a taste of a fake beef stock, mm-hmm. which it has. It's got none of that stuff in it. But that's it's what just it mimics a, in the end. Yeah, it's like a golden plum vinegar. It's just absolutely gorgeous, very silky on the palate, enriching. Um, and it really adds like different layers to food. Um, I mean, we have a red vinegars that we use in the dumplings. We have white white vinegars we use in sauces and stocks. Um, and then we have a fish stock based a vinegar that we use to season our long life soup, which is a supreme broth that we are going to be having very soon. Um, so yeah, I think that's funny. That the American palates change so much that uh, the, whether they know it or not, uh, whether they understand those flavors and the histories behind them and the influence that they've had on their native cuisines, yeah. where they're coming from in Sichuan or Hunan province or elsewhere in China and Shanghai, uh, the American palate still seems now to be ready for that type of. They it's, want it's true. bigger, bolder. And there's even there's like I've got friends working in three Michelin star restaurants in the city, and whenever he comes in here, like to have dinner, he'll be like, "Oh fuck, he's like we fucking use that at EMP or we use that at blah yeah. blah blah, the mushroom powders and stuff like that." It just shows the diversity of you know where Chinese food has come from, its traditions, and you have people like Daniel Hum who are using those kind of products in their food. And for me, I think it's amazing. You know, it's inspiring to know that there's chefs out there who don't specialize in Chinese food they're using it because they respect the job that it can do to a dish and I think it's the and that's the progress of food you know if I make traditional southern collard greens now or cream collard greens it's now I fold in uh, pulverized kimchi into the finish and yeah, it completely that changes delicious. things I'm on a delta flight um, it just pushes the envelope so but the, that, those type of flavors have been indicative and and uh, within Chinese food for centuries and centuries yeah. but now they're really starting to morph into they're what we eat on an spread, exactly. basis. you know when you look at chip flavors yeah. you know potato chip flavors on the on the shelf is just what it was from 10 years ago exactly. is completely different now. Though in Canada, I grew up with ketchup chips. Oh, we, ha- we have them in Scotland. Yeah. Heinz ketchup chips. Yeah. And so good. And they're so good, yet so disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, you can't, it's really... nothing tastes better than nostalgia. So. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. it's definitely a deja vu moment. But, uh, but that's where food to me is really interesting. Like great food for a lot of people pulls at the heartstrings. It kind of makes sense. It brings an evocative moment of a childhood or something like that that's good. Yeah. And it kind of comes full circle. So there's always narrative like that behind food that's intriguing. Let's get to the crux of business and how we do business in this weird world of restaurant and hospitality. I mean, you guys are in New York, the highest rents in pretty much North America. You've got a massive space, but it's tucked away in Chinatown. So is it more achievable here, do you find? Or is it, I mean, you're still doing an immense amount of covers, and I would assume that's that's necessary? I I think that Chinese tuxedo, uh, we really had to strike at a moment in time, and maybe in another era it wouldn't have been possible in this neighbourhood. Uh, it was very important to us that we did the concept here in Chinatown. So my business partner, Jeff Lamb, and I, some years ago, we were having a dim sum lunch just around the corner at a real favourite of ours, a place called Golden Unicorn, which is um, a big place set over three levels, old school kind of New York dim sum. And we felt that as fabulous as a spot like that was, as great as some of the restaurants that we've mentioned, icons like Nomoir and Joe's are, we felt that Chinatown didn't really have a venue that was in step with the contemporary New York food scene. So the decision to, to um, 
situate Chinese tuxedo here in Chinatown was less of an economic one and more of kind of a cultural one and what we wanted to speak to in the brand of the place. But this being 2014 when we started looking, um, there's no question that real estate was more affordable here than maybe it would be in some of the surrounding neighbourhoods. Chinatown's a remarkable neighbourhood in that like, you have Tribeca to the east, Soho to the north, Financial di District directly south, you know, and then the Lower East Side to the immediate east. So it's, it's surrounded with these prestige legacy neighbourhoods, um, all of which have really restaurants exploding food yeah. scenes and different, different identities between them. But Chinatown was kind of caught in aspic and a different kind of economy to, to some of those surrounding neighbourhoods. But the idea of the bargain in Chinatown, I think, is a bit of a misnomer. It still is downtown Manhattan. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. Um, and, and so I think a space of this size maybe wouldn't have been possible for us in the surrounding neighbourhoods. But also, it would have been a very different restaurant. Even if we had opened it, say, six blocks west over in Tribeca, the identity of it, um, probably the demographic, the people coming through, there would have been a bit of variance. We're lucky. We get a lot of destination diners. We draw people from all over the city, the boroughs. We get a lot of international guests. We get, like, uh, destination diners from uptown, from surrounding neighbourhoods. But the Chinatown was key to, to our identity here. Um, we wanted to be kind of a contemporary Chinese food in step with what's happening in other great international food centres, East Asian food centres, I should say, like Shanghai, Hong Kong, Melbourne and Sydney, obviously, yeah. that being our background. Um, but we wanted to situate it right in the heart of uh, uh, New York's Chinatown, and that has been key to, to our identity, certainly. How do you how do you think the food culture here in the states overall differs from Australia? Uh, uh, well, to, to or the restaurant culture. To, to circle back to your comment before about how the the U.S. palate is evolving and maybe getting a bit more bold, a bit more uh, experiential and experimental, drawing from more points around the world. I just think that's fabulous, and I think that's so appropriate. Mm -hmm. There are so many industries. There's New York remains, I think, the food capital of the world. People look to here to see what's happening and the like. Having said that, some of those business pressures you've articulated mean there's a bit of a homogenisation. It's, it's very risky here in New York, super competitive, uh, super high outlay. So I think people are taking less risks to a degree. There's kind of a reversion to the mean. Mm -hmm. You know, People are hitting what they know, the tried and true formulas. I'm not being critical of that. It's a big process to open a restaurant. You want to mit mitigate your risk. But it means that we're in the age of the New York, you know, Italian trattorias and French bistros. They're gorgeous, they're world class, but right now my concern is, is there the breadth happening in, in New York City? Right. But, but the thing I like about New York and think is so special about it is you can be ambitious, you can take a risk, and I think you don't have to take over the city here. You don't have to take over the food scene. You just need to find your lane. And we've been pretty deliberate in understanding what our lane is. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be one thing to open this up and have food that was pulled out of a P.F. Chang's um, yeah. and another thing for you guys to be doing truly, honestly amazing food in, in a venue such as this. I mean, it fits and it works. But it also works in this neighborhood, I think, really well because it's just, the way you guys have designed it and sort of the almost opaqueness of how you, the entry and stuff like that, and then marked by a couple of neon things, really... I don't know, it just drives it. It sets the tone, you know. It sets the tone for the thing that when you walk through the front doors of Chinese Tuxedo, taking into consideration the street that we're on, you know, you come from either angle, whether you're coming from Pell Street all the way around and those those neons hit you, you kind of have like that 
expectation of I feel like what you're going what's about to happen. Like and when you come through the doors and the, the music's on and the candles are lit and the flowers are up there and the room's bustling, I feel like people have really taken on board like the expectation. Um, and touching well, on what Eddie said as well, people people, you know, were willing to give it a chance considering where we were situated, you know? Yeah. With the expectation of, oh my god, this place is gonna be really expensive, but we've got many other cheaper options around no i mean everything on the menu is really fairly priced yeah. and I, I you know i mean it's it's really meant to be a sharing menu um so with sharing menus it's really up to the consumer to figure out what they want to spend you can definitely get fed for uh, not not that much money at all so we, we do inhabit a different category to the rest of the neighborhood yeah. though, or, or a number of the other venues in the neighborhood but that's appropriate, that's appropriate. it is appropriate yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So that's cool so paul when you're running a kitchen these days um, how has it changed over the last 10 years? What do we need to do as chefs these days? Or what do you think we need to do as chefs these days to uh, retain people? And So that's that's an excellent question. And to be honest, I get asked this question quite a lot. And I, I kind of take a bit of pride in answering it because I look back I look back 10 years ago when I was a young chef. Um, and even, even, as, even as less little as five years ago, looking back around when I wasn't as senior, but, you know, really catching a vision of the way other chefs were reacting around other chefs and even to front of house staff. I think the way the direction of, you know, culture in the kitchen is really evolving now is that you you cannot have to have a lot more compassion. You, you can't to, be an asshole you anymore. Cannot be, you can't be a fucking dick anymore because... You shouldn't be an asshole in any No, any you shouldn't be. But you know, just a yeah. weird Why hangover it being, in kitchens. Being, being in our industry, especially as a chef, it's almost like... There's the expectation of that you're going to get fucking bollocked every day, which is not the case, you know. I think I think for me, you know, in terms of the way I operate, in terms of getting the best out of my team, is that if there's an issue, you know, like don't start all this shouting and bawling. You lose, they're done. You'll just lose them for the rest of the day, you know. You need you need them yep. just as much as they need the job. And um, we kind of sit down at the end of the night if there's been an issue. I'm not saying we hold hands and give each other a kiss, but no, it's you not know, kumbaya, we, we but. really kind of like not not to out, you know, what was the issue, you know? Um, and I think that I think that you know, there's a lot of chefs these days who are now starting to operate that way because they have they understand that they can't be dicks anymore. Yeah, I think the, the most productive kitchens and the ones that are really pushing the envelope and doing a continuously good job of consistency, but also progressing. Are happy kitchens. Yeah, They're exactly. well led with enthusiasm and a concentration by good leadership who understand how to harness energy and how For sure. to harness a lot of different personalities, but also to give them credence. I don't hire anymore um, just filling in gaps. I hire people hopefully who are better and smarter than me. Yeah. And it helps me a lot because I can teach them something about leadership. For sure. They can teach me a lot about drive and yeah. how we change things. So, and, and I just think that's good human capital practice. It is. And if you spoke to leaders in any industry or field, that would be the objective. But for some reason, kitchens, it, it, they've had this macho culture for so many there's years. There's a stigma around the stigma. Know? And look, there's no question, ours is an industry for misfits to a point, both front of house and back of house. Uh, I don't mean that as a criticism. I self-identify as a misfit and I'm proud of it. Yes, (laughs) proud of it. I'm Um, I'm a responsible misfit. That's right, that's right. Um, But so 
at the end of the day, Paul and I spend a huge amount of hours in this building and you kind of have a choice of how you want your own personal work life to be and your work life for your team. And if it's a nurturing environment where people can develop and grow, they can see opportunities, mistakes will be made, mistakes are made in any workplace, but we take them as teaching moments and developmental moments and create that kind of healthy, nourishing workplace for the team. It yeah, makes our life a, so much nicer. We have such a big responsibility to be able to help young chefs and waiters and waitresses and bartenders and mixologists to get them where they need to be for their career, you know? I, I was given that guidance, yes, I mean, I got a couple of slaps around the back of the head when I was doing it, being, being a young chef, but, you know, I got there in the end. Chef, Paul, why don't you introduce, we've got a little bit of a, uh, a snack right in front of us right now. Yes. We're going to eat some food. It looks delicious, doesn't it? <laughs> As they set up the restaurant upstairs, which you go, you'll hear tables being dragged. Um, Just so, for context, it's a cold, cold day in New York City today. Yes, so uh, this, is one of the, um, this is one of the kind of a newer snacks or dim sum, if you will, that we've put onto the menu in the last couple of weeks. Um, there's a, so obviously, you know, to describe it, we have this cute little kind of a Chinese-inspired cup and saucer, like a teacup. Um, inside there is a, a scallop and shrimp wonton, um, and it's just been topped up with some supreme broth, also known as um, long-life broth, traditionally made with uh, whole chickens, smoked ham, um, dried scallops, also known as comboy, and shrimps. We just season that up with some uh, white pepper, a little bit of my riff as I put some dashi in there, which mm -hmm. adds even more smokiness. A little bit of light sauce, uh, light soy, sorry, uh, some ginger oil. It just uh, so it has this real kind of a saltiness, sweetness, you know, a lot of umami. And I like the ginger oil on the back of the uh, yeah. The the broth and then we um, we actually we make a raft and consomme the uh, the broth just to kind of give it a little bit more clarity. Um, it's usually generally pretty cloudy traditionally. But um, yeah, we just, it's just kind of our element on it, you know. Every culture has a sort of soothing matzo ball soup, yeah. and this is it. This is uh, it's just amazingly complex. The broth and mm. uh, the mousseline and the in the dumplings, great. So just beautiful and fresh. But it's funny. It, it, back to being, um, geez, we're all foreigners. Um, <laughs> I'm Canadian. You're Aussie. You're Scottish. Scottish. It sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, but um, in a Chinese restaurant, in a Chinese <laughs> restaurant, enter a Chinese, walk into a Chinese restaurant and order matzo ball soup. Um, but it is, it's, it's. We're finally at a time where I think that the conversation about appropriation is appropriate, oddly enough, to have. But you know, there's also a degree where cultural appropriation and back in the days of fusion seemed really inappropriate. And it wasn't appropriate because I think that people failed to understand the depths of the food that they were playing with. That they were giving a couple of attributes of Japanese food to really westernized food. Yeah. Without digging deep first and realizing the amazing bounty and history that was there. You know, American food is a really nascent cultural thing. I mean, it's only 200 years old as we, yeah. what we know as food and it really relies mostly on... Um, southern cultural food, 
in the south, uh, which is really impacted from West, Gal- uh, West Africa and the Golden Geechee communities. But it's really interesting to come into a place doing Chinese food made by white people um, that has actually cultural significance still to it. It's not glossing it over. And that's why I think it is appropriate now. Um, when you talk about Andy Ricker with Pock Pock, you're talking about um, somebody who lives half of his time in Thailand, fully understands the culture and the cuisine, yeah. has an encyclopedic knowledge of it. So I think that, that that's where appropriation gets pushed to the side and is no longer... It's true. It's very true. Even that we have to. But this food shows a respect for the food. Exactly. It's first and foremost. And that's that was something that you know from day one that we we discussed it. You know, many 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 times was we we want to keep the flavors and history intact, but why not push the envelope and do it? Like for example, like this is a perfect example. Your typical Chinese restaurant maybe wouldn't present this like this, you know. But however, when you eat it, it tastes. It, it, it tastes historical, you know. Yeah, um, and there's it's a very like, classic, traditional, elegant yeah. dish. But we've tried to present it in a more New York yeah. fashion. Yeah, yeah exactly. Trying to be sympathetic and, and touching on, you know, we're talking about Andy Ricker as well. You know, David Thompson mm-hmm. of Nam in Bangkok um, is a fantastic other example who really studied regal Thai cuisine, spent time cooking for the King of Thailand, um, and really elevated Thai food. You know, he's got this fantastic. I call it the Bible. It's my favorite cookbook mm-hmm. called Thai Food. Um, and he's another perfect example of a chef who really, restaurateur who really pushed the boundary on Thai food and really added his own thing to it, you know? He's his own walking encyclopedia, that man. Yes, yeah. he is. <laughs> it so, is so really. For, for us in the development of the concept and development of the menu, that was something that was always at the forefront of, of the mind. It couldn't be a secondary consideration. It had to be a primary consideration. Is this respectful? Is this thoughtful? We still wanted to put our own signature on everything from the guest experience through to the food. But growing up Australian, or for Paul spending so much time cooking in Australia... This food is part of our collective experience, both the both from the everyday food that you access, the food you might cook at home. As a kid, you know, I cooked more with a wok than, than a, a flat pan, um, just cooking for my family and the like, through to the very kind of high-end dining experiences. So growing up as a kid in Melbourne in the 90s, when we had special occasion dinners, be it, you know, a birthday or a graduation or, or whatnot, the, the restaurant that we wanted to go to, the restaurant that was the most special treat for me growing up, the most, like, important restaurant for me, was a Cantonese restaurant. Um, so it's also part of the Australian collective experience. Um, I don't think that that would have happened so much here in the States. I think when people think of their high-end restaurants, they're typically... You know, the, the, you see the European influence, be it French or Italian. Um, you know, there's this wave of neo-Spanish happening right now. Contemporary American is such an established prestige category. But for us, spending a lot of time in Southeast Asia, spending you know, growing up in Australia and really learning food in Australia, this food is stuff that can be celebrated, can be ambitious, can be kind of dynamic. Um, whereas, and, and and we wanted to 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 show that and champion that. That's yeah. what it's born of. I was shooting a TV program outside of Toronto, and Toronto's got a massive, massive immigrant community. And um, the Shanghai community is very big there, and there's a lot of Hong Kong influence. Um, and more in the, on the eastern side of the city, there's a huge enclave of, of quite high-end Chinese eateries, and one of which was, was really known for 
whole crab. And it, the place is massive. It probably seats 400 people. Wow. Um, tanks all along all the walls. Um, and they pick your crab, they bring it to you live, and then they take it back and cook it and serve it in eight different presentations. Fabulous. Your bill comes. Putting it to Toronto. <laughs> yeah. there, there were three of us. <laughs> there were three of us eating. And our bill was seven hundred dollars. Wow! I mean, it, I mean, it gold plate really expensive. <laughs> I mean, it was it was really expensive. Um, and then the huge, like somebody next to us got like a twelve pound lobster. I mean, the thing was you know yeah. just, uh, half the size of me. Um, <laughs> and then the, the the kicker was, and this is, this is such a sort of Hong Kong restaurant thing is they. Only you can only pay in cash, <laughs> and I was like, "It's seven hundred. Who has that much cash? Somebody's going to rob this place." This I mean, the place is this, this is Chinatown, man. Cash it is. It is. Everybody it is. has that much but cash. I, I was just blown away. But the place was just utterly packed. Um, so I mean, that was the, the food good. Food was great. It was great. Seven hundred dollars. It was best seven hundred dollar crab <laughs> I think I've ever had. Yeah, <laughs> I had to go to like three different bank machines. I'll totter around the neighborhood right nearby quickly to to, to rummage together the cash. See, um, interestingly, you won't find a lot of that here in in New York. There's some pretty compelling places out in Flushing. In Flushing, you will. We yeah, we did. We did all of our when Paulie first came to the states to to do some test, uh, some kitchen testing and the like. We did all that out in Flushing. Um, with some Shanghainese friends out there. but uh, And there are a couple of big old-school uh, places in Flushing, but that Imperial Cantonese that you speak yeah. to, which we both love... Yeah, that's, that's uh, um, my favourite way to eat. We, we, we find it that, that, that certainly in Manhattan there's not a lot that, that fit that category. It's kind of, it was crazy over the top this yeah. week. I mean, it was really interesting to see. A woman was having her, uh, she looked like the grandmother or the uh, grand pa- matriarch of the family. There was eight of them sitting at a table. And she got her birthday cake. And um, there's a smaller, beautiful cake. And there was a the end of a dollar bill, what looked like a dollar bill sticking out of it, wrapped in a little plastic clear envelope. And she's, But it was a hundred. And she, she started pulling. Up? No, she started pulling it. It's in, in the cake, wound up. <laughs> she started pulling it, and it was like thirty hundred dollar bills all in a row in this special little oh clear God. envelope. I mean, it was that well, type of well, crazy well, over the top. Well, restaurant. she probably needed it for the check. But well, yeah, I'm I, should have brought I, a cake. I was like, hey, can I write you a check? And give me cash. That would be great. So, so. Chef, what are you most excited about? Like, how, in in the food, where where do you want to see it go? What do you, what do you figure your what's the learning curve? To me, uh, the funnest part of our business is we never get to say it's done. We're constantly learning. You're, constantly, you're right. There's there's an education that we don't have yet. Yeah, that is only around the corner. But, but you know, that's what food and, is. Food's yeah. an endless topic, and it's the deep dive. So, what what's the deep dive that you I, want to go into and explore? I think for me, look, I look, I've, you know, social media is over the last five years, particularly Instagram, has really, really blown up. Um, I'd say for me, you know, in terms of like the chefs who I follow on Instagram to see, you know, what the trends are in Italy, what the trends are, you know, in Chicago, back even back home in Australia, the UK. I take I take a lot of looks at um, Rene Redzepi's mm-hmm. of Noma. Some of the produce, the weird produce that he utilizes and what he does with it is absolutely incredible. Now we're, t- we're talking different cuisines. Um, there's and there's a lot of produce here that you know that I haven't experimented with. Um, it's only a matter of time before I get my hands on some. Some of the stuff's expensive, and we don't know. You know, can we utilize these products 
well enough to justify selling them. So like sea cucumbers, which can go for thousands of dollars each, you know. Um, which are mostly actually Errol, fished for uh, on Fogo Island, Newfoundland. That's which right. Which is an amazing, beautiful island off the coast of Newfoundland. And they really tapped into that market because they're really known for cod fisheries there yeah. and, and snow crab. Uh, and a couple of Chinese business people in the seafood industry came over about 10 years ago and figured out that they had sea cucumbers everywhere. And so it became like this huge part of their economy, oh which, uh, you know, nobody can or really eats sea cucumbers. There's a lot of money in that market as well, you know. Um, you know, even things like pearl meat, you know, Eddie was touching before on one of his favorite Cantonese restaurants in Melbourne. They've got this fantastic dish on the menu where they do stir-fried pearl meat, mm-hmm. serve it in this really luxurious uh, scallop pearl shell essentially um, and it's just like stuff like that that really get get my mind going you know it's like produce like this you don't see it here Yeah, it's like how can we get a hold of things like that to really take our education to the next level well that's the thing if there's demand for it and you want to buy it you can get anything yeah. in New York so it's a good time to be and, here and the good thing is now I feel after a couple of years we've engendered pardon me, a little bit of trust in our consumer. So maybe if we'd open doors with some of the more esoteric lines like that, they might have been a harder sell. But uh, we've done all sorts of interesting things from jellyfish to yeah. frogs. Live, through. you know, I frequently get live frogs in. I'll pick them up from Chinatown in the morning. And when I'm walking, I can, when I'm walking to work, I'm holding this little red bag and I can feel them. <laughs> I can feel them jumping everywhere. So it's like as soon as I get in, I pretty much have to butcher them straight away. Um, but stuff like that, and customers love it, you know, and we do it yeah. different ways. We'll stir fry it with asparagus and white chives, or we'll do it salt and pepper style with chili relish. So things like that really, also, it's inspiring for the team. Right. To see different things that we've never seen it before, you know. But you've got to constantly inspire them. Yeah. I mean, these days for a cook to to keep cooks for a long time, you've got to teach them and inspire them, and they have to be excited to come to work every you day. Need to be evolving as well, you know. If it's a job of drudgery in a, this employment market, yeah. when they're never going to show up tomorrow. Exactly. So some of the some of the I mean, we we've been fortunate enough to retain a lot of our staff for the duration that we've been open. You know, yes, we've lost some staff as well, but that's fine. You know. It possibly wasn't the place for them. That's but, gonna happen. You know, like it's inevitable. Some of the guys who you know brought out our delicious snacks, he's they've been with me for two years. You know, yeah. and that's really refreshing for us to know that we are inspiring these young guys and girls to hang around and get a better education and hopefully give themselves a better career. I opened up my first restaurant in 2000. We still have some some of the waiters and some of the cooks are still there from day one, wow. which is uh, is crazy. I mean, it's. But it means that they have a sense of ownership of the place. It's a positive reflection on yourself as well. You know, it's like you're giving as much as you can and they're appreciating and respecting you to the point where they don't want to work anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, the gravestone that I want has always been, man, he's a pretty nice guy and good employer. That's good enough for me. So. Very Canadian of you. Very yes, yeah, we're very, yeah. yeah we're apologetic. As an Australian, I sympathize. Yes, but. yeah. Well, you guys have been uh, amazing to, to have on the, on the show and, and to talk about this amazing entity you have called Chinese Tuxedo. So uh, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Eddie, yeah, thank, you, so thank you for coming down to chat. Chinatown. It's good yeah. to be here. We we'll, love it. We'll rustle you up some lettuce before you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> With frogs. Yes, and frogs. <laughs> That's cool. Do you guys get abalone much? Does abalone mm. and stuff like that? I, I, I dabbled in abalone when we first opened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was getting it from New Zealand. Okay. And 
it didn't travel very well, so I stopped specialing it. I think the shock, yeah, the abalone. There's a Hawaiian realizing or Maui, um, no Kona, abalone company. They're really good. I, actually, I've heard of that. Maybe I'll yeah, I'll get into Try that. that. I, I love abalone. I love abalone. Yeah, me too. And so the, the Santa Barbara guys are pretty good. Yeah. Actually, so, and so I yeah, also as a, as, a, as a proud Victorian, Melbourne, Australia, I'm only interested in Victorian abalone. Yeah, I'm not pretentious on much, but uh, abalone is Tasmanian uh, sea urchins, yeah. incredible. Yeah, it's really good. So uh, good. Sea urchin comes all the way in down the St. Lawrence almost, where it's brackish waters. Uh, so way inland into, into Quebec, and all the Joe Beef guys get all the all their uni from there. Yeah, yeah it's so good. Canada's got so some fantastic good. seafood. Yeah, it really in the does. weirdest places too. Because mm. I mean, if you look at a map in North America, that's almost like above Quebec City. Yeah, and they're getting it, so it's pretty crazy. But out of brackish water. Yeah, yeah, kind of crazy. Different world. Well, thanks, guys. Thank you. Oh, thank awesome. You. Real thank pleasure. You very much. Pleasure to meet yeah. you. Thank you for your time. This episode of Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot was taped on location by Brian Blum, a Chinese tuxedo in New York's Chinatown. Scott Porch produces the show, and Mackenzie Mazel edited this episode. You can follow Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please rate and review and come back on Tuesdays for a new episode. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Hugh Atchison. Be forewarned, I'm kind of a dweeb. But a good week. Okay. Thanks for listening. Eat well. Peace well. <laughs>